Well, good morning, Mount Vernon. Uh, I just want to say before we begin what a joy and privilege it is to be one of your elders. Uh, Jenny and I have been uh, members of Mount Vernon for about four and a half years now, and it has been a delight to strive side by side with you all, uh, growing in Christ, proclaiming the kingdom, uh, preaching the gospel to ourselves, and growing in grace and godliness. So we love you, church family. We're very thankful for you, and it's a joy to get to open the word with you this morning. C.S. Lewis once wrote, we are half-hearted Christians, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000, it's hard not to walk away with the impression that the multitudes were far too easily pleased. Too easily pleased with a simple meal. They were prepared to make Jesus king after he fed them. The crowds were willing to work for food that perishes rather than what was eternally satisfying to the human heart. And not much has changed. People jump from one thing to the next, chasing a satisfaction in life that's elusive and deceptive. The truth is that we were created to be satisfied in the one whose image we bear. Our scripture this morning is at just about the midpoint of Mark's gospel, and it introduces a dramatic turning point in Mark's account. Mark is a fast-paced gospel. It's action-oriented. He jumps from one scene to the next, moving the story along with very few instances of extended discourse and teaching and dialogue by Jesus. The gospel writers organize their accounts intentionally, placing particular scenes and events next to one another, like the three most important qualities of real estate, location, location, location. To rightly understand a gospel writer's intent, we must pay attention to the context, context, context. And Mark is masterful at doing this. And our passage today is no exception. The feeding of the 4,000 is more than a mere material provision for the multitude. It builds upon Jesus' self-disclosure self -disclosure as God the Son. One of the clear overarching purposes of Mark, as he states in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you have not turned there yet, turn to Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you're in the main hall and using a pew Bible, I believe it's found on page 843. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Some treat the feeding of the 4,000 like one of those straight-to-home video Disney sequels. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Aladdin 2, The Lion King 2, and pretty much every other Disney classic cartoon. A chance to make some money, but not worth a theater release, and frankly, just not as good as the original. Perhaps one of the reasons that, uh, for that is that only two of the gospel writers record this event while the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded by all four gospel writers, which speaks of its importance to them. Another reason may be the similarity between the two scenes. They follow the exact same sequence of events, right? There's a great crowd that gathers. Jesus has compassion on them because they're hungry and in a desolate place. He talks to his disciples about meeting the need. Some uh, loaves of bread and fish are brought to Jesus. He blesses it, tells the crowd to sit down. The disciples distribute the food. They collect leftovers. And Jesus and the disciples hop into a boat. In fact, the stories are so similar that many commentators over the years have argued that these are the same events recorded twice with Matthew and Mark, simply changing some of the details for stylistic reasons. However, a careful reading will show that even Jesus himself recalled these two scenes as separate, though related events. And he does so later on in chapter 8. We'll see that here in a few minutes. Now, Mark 8 is part of a larger unit that starts all the way back in chapter 6. When the question of Jesus' identity comes into sharper focus throughout the narratives, right? So context, context, context. So by the time we get to chapter 8 and another miraculous feeding is recorded, it's followed by another skeptical challenge by the Pharisees that will lead to Peter's crystal clear confession that Jesus is the Christ. Right? The question is, who is Jesus? So what are we to make of these crowd-feeding scenes? And in particular, what is Jesus trying to teach his disciples through this event of feeding the 4,000? I trust you're familiar with this passage and perhaps have wondered whether or not there is a deeper significance to Mark's inclusion of two miraculous feedings. And I have three answers to this question this morning rooted in Christ's divine identity that shows God's gracious provision for a needy and sinful people. And so here are my three answers. I'll give them to you up front and then we'll go through one by one. Number one, Jesus is a deeply loving Savior. Number two, Jesus is a satisfying Savior. And number three, Jesus is a suffering Savior. So deeply loving, satisfying, and suffering. The feeding of the 4,000 is a remarkable display of a God who generously provides what humanity needs. Said more personally, the transcendent creator God 
knows your every need and has provided abundantly for them in his son, Jesus. So number one, Jesus is a deeply loving Savior. So the way that Mark has written this narrative in chapter 8 is intended to remind us of similar Old Testament scenes, particularly scenes like the one uh, Ashley just read for us this morning in Exodus 16. Mark 8, 1 through 10 begins and ends noting the size of the crowd, right, in verse 1. He says, a great crowd had gathered. And then at the end, bookending this uh, account in verse 9, Mark notes that there were about 4,000 people. In Matthew's account of this story, he mentions that uh, the head count is besides women and children. Right? The authors are simply noting and highlighting households that are represented in the crowd. One commentator mentions that this gathering is larger than the combined population of the whole surrounding region. All right, so Mark also highlights in verse 4 that they're in a desolate place. As a result, he mentions twice in verses 1 and 2 that they had nothing to eat. So we have a, a multitude of people in the wilderness and nothing to eat. Does that sound familiar? To take it even further, Jesus provides this hungry multitude with bread, a direct callback to God's provision of manna in the wilderness. So Mark wants his readers to identify this Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. One clear way he does this is through the question asked by the disciples in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Well, the answer, of course, is that only God can. In his kindness, Jesus is further revealing who he is to his disciples. He does this time and again in this larger section from Matthew 6 through the end of chapter 8, but they simply don't get it. They missed it the first time when Jesus fed the 5,000, and as we're about to see, they didn't get it after the sequel here in chapter 8. Jesus shows himself to be a deeply loving Savior in this account, and he does so in two specific ways. First, in verse 2, Jesus says that he has compassion on the crowd. Right? The word here speaks of a deep-seated affection that moves one to act for the benefit of another. It literally means that Jesus felt it in his bowels. This sort of deeply felt compassionate love for others marks the life and teaching of Jesus. It's the same compassion the Samaritan had for the man who was beaten and robbed. It moved him to sacrificially care for the, for the man. It's also the deep love displayed in the father of the prodigal son when he was far off and he saw his son. Right? It welled up in his bowels and he ran to meet him. And numerous other occasions when Jesus saw crowds, had compassion on them to heal their infirmities, to teach and shepherd them, or to meet their physical needs like in our account this morning. which should make us pause and ask ourselves, how do you respond when you see suffering and need around you? Are we so used to it that we don't feel it in our bowels anymore? 
Are we so tempted to skepticism about how someone might use our aid or whether they truly need it that we don't act as often as we should or with as much generosity as we should? Spiritual maturity is conformity to the image of this Savior. Is the compassion of Christ increasing in your life? Jesus is sincerely concerned for the well-being of the crowd. And notice, he's the initiator. Unlike the wilderness accounts in Exodus and Numbers, the people don't complain about being hungry. He knows what they need before they ask. And he begins to work for their good. Jesus knows what you need before you ask him. Compassionate love is attentive and it initiates. Like a loving parent who knows and provides what a child needs so often without being asked. That Jesus has compassion on everyone also reveals his deeply loving nature. Many in this crowd will ultimately turn away and reject him. And yet, with sincere love, he provides for them all. Jesus' compassion and provision for the crowd is what pastors and theologians call common grace. God provides for and sustains all of creation moment by moment. The psalmist says it really well in Psalm 104, verses 10 through 15. He says this, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides the birds of the heavens dwell. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and interestingly enough, bread to strengthen man's heart. It's common grace because it's given to all. It's grace because no one deserves these kindnesses from God. Yet he distributes his gifts freely, even to the wicked. Jesus speaks of it this way in Matthew 5, verse 45. For he makes his sun shine and rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The reality of common grace is a witness to all humanity of God's holy, good, and loving nature. This is the heart of Christ towards sinful humanity. He does immeasurable good to all. He is a compassionate God and Savior. If you're here or listening online this morning and know that you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to notice God's common grace to you? Everything good that you have in your life comes from him. The provision of food every day, your ability to work, your health, earning a living, the presence of others who love you, a warm bed to sleep in at night, the very life that you have, these are all gifts of God's kindness to you. Life is hard. Under the curse of sin, suffering is real. 
but so is God's goodness and his goodness to all, and it should not be overlooked. A common attitude toward God is that he is not good. Given the suffering and evil in the world, the Bible deals honestly with that question. I just sat through an incredible an incredibly edifying Sunday school hour. Dane just handled this topic in particular, the problem of evil, so well. I would encourage you to talk to him about his notes after the service. So the Bible deals honestly with that question, but conversely, an overemphasis on the destructive impact of sin in our world and on our lives should not overshadow the abundant goodness and grace that God does toward his creation and creatures every moment of every day. In our text, Jesus does not discriminate. He graciously provides for the needs of the crowd. A second way that we see Christ's love here is in his relationship to the disciples. He graciously reveals himself to them and continues to do so even when their hearts are hard and they fail to understand. I mentioned a moment ago that uh, this is the second crowd-feeding miracle in Mark. Commentators have wrestled over why Mark includes this second feeding account. And that's an interesting question. When you remember that at the end of John's gospel, he writes this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. That's John 21, 25. Why then... Do Matthew and Mark both devote space to a second feeding? When so much more could have been recorded, why include a nearly identical story to the feeding of the 5,000? Well, most propose that these accounts are a pair, portraying that Christ has come as Savior for both Jews and Gentiles. And there are good reasons in the text for this. Uh, you might recall a few weeks ago when Dustin preached on the previous passage, the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, displayed remarkable faith, and the conversation centers around bread of all things. Uh, go back with me to chapter 7, verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And just before this account, Mark parenthetically notes that Jesus declares all foods clean. So Jesus is fulfilling and, in a sense, removing the law that separates Gentiles from God's covenant promises. And others highlight that uh, in Mark, he makes particular, um, a, a particular point of, of highlighting the geographic progression of Jesus' movements around Galilee, uh, distinguishing between the location of the first feeding and this one, and it seems he's intentionally, Jesus is intentionally in Gentile territory, in Galilee, for this miracle. So, without a doubt, Jesus' ministry expands God's promises to the Gentiles. And this could be one of the reasons Mark includes both feedings. It's not explicit in our passage this morning, but these indicators make this proposal a reasonable one. But I think if we take a step back and see the passage uh, for the forest and not just the trees, I think we can see more clearly what Mark is doing. So that kind of gets back to our context, context, context mantra. Uh, I mentioned that Mark 8, 1 through 10 is a part of a larger unit. It goes all the way back to chapter 6, 
where Jesus feeds the 5,000. These serve as bookends. And these stories seem to uh, have this main idea about Christ's self-disclosure to his disciples. And uh, that first story in, in Mark chapter 6 ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. There's not much explanation to the miracle. They hop in a boat and they go. And Jesus walks on the water and he meets them. They are just astounded by this. It says in chapter 6, verse 51. Uh, and, and here's why they would have been astounded. If the disciples knew their Old Testament, they would have known that God's Word tells us that only God walks on the sea. And it says this in Job chapter 9, verse 8. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? So the disciples are utterly astounded at this display of divine authority as Christ comes to them across the sea. But then in, in chapter 6, verse 52, it says this, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It forces the reader to ask how these events are related. Somehow his walking on water and calming of the wind is connected to his feeding of the 5,000. While Mark doesn't yet reveal that relationship, the point he does make is that the disciples don't have ears to hear. Even as Jesus discloses his divine nature to them, they don't understand. How do we know this? Well, notice as Mark progresses then as we build towards chapter 8, there's a healing of a deaf man just before the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus is the one who gives ears to hear. And so the question is kind of posed to the reader as he's moving through the narrative, will Jesus give the disciples ears to hear? Go with me down to chapter 8, verse 14. After the Pharisees demand a sign, Jesus and the twelve get into a boat again and pick up in verse 14 with me. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Then in the very next scene, what does Jesus do? If you have a heading there, you see that Jesus heals a blind man. But it's an unusual kind of a healing, right? Pick up in, in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Context, context, context. Sandwiched between the healing of a man who could not hear and one who could not see, Jesus feeds the 4,000 and presses his disciples for their lack of understanding. They don't have ears to hear and they don't have eyes to see who he truly is. 
What is it that Jesus wants the 12 to understand? Well, he's lovingly revealing to them his true identity. He's displaying his divine nature, miraculously providing bread in the wilderness just like his father in the Old Testament. And he's walking on the sea, an act only God could do. For the first readers on this narrative journey with Mark, the question at this point is, did they get it? Well, let's see. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Like the blind man, Peter could see, but he couldn't yet see clearly. Because in the very next scene, Jesus has to rebuke Peter because he hasn't fully understood the mission of the God-man come as the Messiah in his first coming. The feeding of the 4,000 reveals a deeply loving Savior who patiently gives his people's ears to hear and eyes to see. Now, it doesn't always happen instantly, but he knows we're spiritually blind and deaf, so he graciously restores our spiritual faculty so that by faith we can know that Jesus is the divine Savior. Let me just share a word of encouragement. If you feel spiritually frustrated right now, be encouraged. A soft heart and eyes to see the work of God alone are acts of God that he graciously works upon each one of us. Trust that if you are his, he is patiently opening your eyes to behold his glory and his beauty. He wants you to know him. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. He has given us the church. You have everything that you need. We all have a tendency to look around and compare our doctrinal IQ and the depth of our relationship with God to someone else. Sometimes that can positively motivate us but other times it can feel crushing and discouraging. Do you see the tender, gracious, patient love of Jesus shepherding his disciples along, even as they didn't understand, as they weren't getting it, despite the miraculous and powerful displays of his divine power that he showed them? But he patiently shepherded them, opening their eyes slowly but surely, like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. He's not the impatient parent who just can't understand why their kids don't get it. Jesus is not huffing and yelling and perplexed about us. He's gently bringing you along at just the right pace and will faithfully complete the work he's begun in you. If you're especially hard on yourself regarding your spiritual growth, take heart. Be faithful, confident that Jesus has compassion towards you. 
like the blind man who could see more clearly in stages, the disciples could see little by little. So be patient, keep pursuing the Lord, and you will too. Others here may tend to lack urgency in your spiritual growth. Jesus' questions are for you this morning. Do you really understand? Do you not yet perceive his significance and his importance for your life, for your families? The disciples needed Jesus to love them enough to ask these hard questions, to point out their hardness of heart. The questions he asks here are straight out of the Old Testament prophets, warning God's people of his judgment. This would have been a sobering moment for the twelve. They would have been asking themselves, are we like the Pharisees who just don't get who Jesus is? So let me ask you this morning, do you make excuses for your lack of growth? Is life too busy for you to read your Bible, to do it consistently, to pray faithfully? COVID-19 notwithstanding, is presence as the church gathers not as high a priority to you as other things you have going on in your life? Is your heart hard and stubborn? Do you hear Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but quietly dismiss it in your heart as too high of an ideal to be practical? Would you be humble and receptive to an elder or a fellow member coming alongside of you and asking these sorts of hard questions, probing your life, asking if you get it. If the 12 needed to hear these questions, so do we. God graciously puts others into our lives to warn us of the leaven of the Pharisees that we might be prone to believe. Invite an elder or other member you trust to probe into your daily spiritual walk and test whether you really understand the significance of who Jesus is. We all need this. If you find yourself cold towards the Lord right now or have displayed a pattern of ups and downs in your walk with Christ, know that he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. Lean into the church. Jesus is a deeply loving Savior. Okay, that was my longest point, I promise. I got two more. Jesus is a satisfying Savior. For several years, uh, Snickers ran a number of ads showing the effects of hunger on people in everyday situations. You might remember some of these commercials. Whether it was uh, Betty White being tackled, playing uh, football with the guys, or Mr. Bean leaping across buildings kung fu style, uh, a famous actor would make some off-the-wall comments and someone would pull them aside and hand them a Snickers and say, take a bite, you're not yourself. And they would do so and they would turn back to normal. Uh, these ads would close with the slogan, Snickers satisfies. It was catchy and memorable. I remembered it as I was preparing the sermon. I haven't seen one of those ads in years. Of course, in Mark 8, uh, nobody's hangry, as uh, they say. But it seems Jesus is aware of the crowd's hunger and acts to satisfy it. 
Mark presents Jesus as the source of total and complete satisfaction. As is true of his other miracles, the physical outward display of God's power points to something spiritual and more ultimate. The Lord provides for a temporary need to point to a far more urgent reality and need in the people. Consider the setting. It's a desolate place. It points to a larger reality of life in a fallen world without Christ. Apart from Christ, there's no hope. And a world without hope is truly a desolate place. Why do you think people are responding to life in this world as they are today? Look at the hope and confidence people are looking to governing authorities. It truly is desolate. Our souls long to be satisfied. And people pursue this in any number of ways. It's the plight of every human being, born sinful and rebellious against God. Now, uh, numbers in the Bible don't always have a deeper significance, but sometimes they do. And the number seven often points to completeness in Scripture. So I don't think it's an accident that Jesus uses seven loaves to satisfy the hunger of the crowd, or that seven baskets full of leftovers are collected afterward. It seems to be Mark's way of highlighting what he says plainly down in verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. It was a complete satisfaction. In fact, his provision exceeded the need, right? But there seems to be more going on here, given Jesus' questions to the twelve. Now, bread plays a, a prominent role throughout the Bible, from the Passover meal, to the wilderness wanderings, to the table of showbread in the temple, to the temptation of Christ, these crowd-feeding miracles that we're looking at this morning, the upper room where Jesus broke bread with his disciples the night he was betrayed, and when we consider the Lord's table that we share in together as local churches. The, Bible, the Bible's theme of bread presses in on this passage and points to a deeper reality about the satisfying nature of Jesus Christ. Everyone was satisfied by this miraculous meal, but they would be hungry again. Ultimately, man shall not live by bread alone. Our souls long for a satisfaction that will never end, a satisfaction that only Christ can give, can give. And he offers himself to be received by faith in order to meet our deepest need. And John makes this crystal clear following his account of the feeding of the 5,000. So turn with me quickly. Keep your finger in Mark 8. But John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, starting in verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, or you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, that I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Jesus not only has the power to multiply bread for temporary satisfaction, he is the living bread himself and gives eternal satisfaction to our souls. Some of you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You've experienced that his satisfying love in the gospel never fails. You know that by faith, all of the promises of God are yes in him and provide satisfaction in life forever. But I also suspect that some listening this morning struggle to embrace this truth fully. Life is hard. The cares of this world choke out the satisfying love of Christ and tempt you to unbelief. Having never really seen the beauty and glory of Christ, you're quite content with what C.S. Lewis calls mud pies. By satisfying the 4,000, Jesus reveals a glorious truth about why his divine nature matters. He is not only the source of all life, but of all human satisfaction. And Peter, who experienced this firsthand, later wrote about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire." So what mud pies, as C.S. Lewis put it, are you looking to to satisfy the longings of your soul? Do you tolerate any pleasures of sin in your life, convinced that those things are making you happy? Jesus would have us see them for the vomit that they really are. Unbelief is at the root of a failure to look to Christ in this way. Psalm 16, 11 is a rock solid made out of granite truth. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we return to the vomit of sin, we deny the truth of Psalm 1611. So just to, to help us process this a little bit more practically, what are some indicators of our satisfaction in Christ? 
How can you measure whether or not that's present and increasing in your life? Here's some questions you can ask yourself. Am I more content than I used to be? There's a a freedom that comes when we aren't looking to material things for our joy. Are you more generous than you used to be? We can be joyfully open-handed with what we have when the source of our satisfaction doesn't come from money or time that we spend on ourselves, whether that's another vacation or the avoidance of serving in church or serving our neighbors. Are you at rest wherever the Lord has you in this season of your life? If single, in your singleness, maybe it's the suffering of failing health, maybe it's a a frustrating job, maybe it's the frustration of not knowing what's next, maybe it's a particularly hard season at home with the kids. Maybe you can't have children at all. Are you at rest where the Lord has you? Is he your satisfaction in spite of all of those losses and difficulties? Whatever it might be for you, if it's pushing your satisfaction in Christ to the margins of your days and weeks, it may indicate a lack of faith in this truth. And our prayer for daily bread isn't only a prayer for our physical needs to be met, but that each day we would get our portion of Christ and be satisfied in him, the bread of life. If you've struggled to have consistent time in the word, listen to me. Don't just tell someone. Ask them to help you. I have had so many other saints tell me they struggle to get in the word. And I praise God at their transparency. But that is not often followed by, please help me. I need to grow. So tell someone that you're struggling to be in the word, to get your portion of our daily bread from Christ through the means of grace that he's provided to us. And then ask them to help you get better. I have benefited greatly by reading through Scripture with others. One way you might consider pursuing this in the new year is joining together with other brothers and sisters and pick a reading plan and read through the same thing together and then get together and discuss it. Pray through it. Ask Christ to make his truth known to you and come to life to you. Help uh, ask for the Spirit's help and grace in you to find your portion and satisfaction in Christ more and more. Strive side by side with someone else if you struggle to find your portion in Christ. A lifelong commitment to reading and studying Scripture is like a marathon. It's not a sprint. It takes time and discipline to build up an endurance that will last you the rest of your life. And it's never too late to start. Whether it's a reading plan or if reading is difficult, listening to God's word, praise God for the technology to listen to the Bible. Whether it's a reading plan or some other approach, look to have a steady diet of the word that your desire for the Lord might increase. 
Jesus is a satisfying Savior. He wants more, uh, he wants more than anything to graciously meet your physical needs, but also to grow your appetite for him daily. All right, so finally, Jesus is a suffering Savior. Look with me at verse 6 again. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. If this sounds familiar, I think Mark intends it to be. Numerous commentators point out the similarities between this verse and the events of the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed. Just flip over a couple of pages to chapter 14 of Mark and look at verse 22. He says, and they were, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Jesus gave his body to be broken on the cross for sinners. The ultimate act of satisfying love for undeserving sinners is Christ's substitutionary atonement on Calvary. If the feeding of the 4,000 is Jesus' self-disclosure of his person and mission in the world, it ultimately points to his death and resurrection. Alt, uh, immediately after Peter's confession in Mark 8:29, Mark records this in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. More than broken bread, Jesus knows that we need his broken body. We need his broken body to reconcile us to God. Jesus didn't come for good people. He was sent to redeem undeserving sinners like you and me, those without eyes to see or ears to hear. Christ's compassion for sinners is greater than our need for another meal. Everyone has sinned against the one true and living God, a righteous and holy God who justly judges sin. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. One who became like us, who lived a perfect life, obeying God in every way and never sinned. And he willingly was broken on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin. And in three days was raised back to life, conquering sin and death, our greatest enemies. So that anyone who would humbly admit their sinfulness before God and would repent and turn away from that sin and believe in Christ could be forgiven and saved. This is the gospel, the good news and hope of God's saving grace. Would you trust him today? The deeply loving, satisfying Savior suffered so that sinners might be forgiven of every sin they will or they have ever committed. If you'd like to talk more about this, we would love to show you from the Bible how these truths can satisfy your soul for eternity. It's only through the finished work of the suffering Savior who was broken for us that we can be made whole. When I quoted Lewis at the beginning, I left out the first line. So here's the first quote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. May our satisfaction in this world continue to weaken and our longing to be satisfied by the bread of life grow stronger and stronger. By God's grace, we'll desire Christ above all. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son, God the Son incarnate, who took on human flesh, the bread of life, come down from heaven to be broken that we might have life and life to the full. Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict us when we don't find our satisfaction in you. And Lord, for those who are far from you, I pray that they would find in Christ the hope of a satisfaction that their soul longs for and a conviction of sin that might lead to a godly sorrow and repentance and saving faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.